Good morning, everybody. I welcome you all to the Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy Association's an episode of Tales from the Heart with my very special guest, Rosemary Gibson, author extraordinaire and patient advocate and safety expert. Rosemary, thank you so much for joining us on Tales from the Heart. It's lovely to have you here today. Let me tell our listeners a little bit about how our paths have crossed over the years in different ways. So you and I both began in advocacy on the patient safety front. My sister was a victim of medical mismanagement for her hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, which led to her untimely death at the age of 36. And you, almost around the same time in the 90s, were writing about medical errors. You want to talk a little bit about how you kind of got started in this space? Sure, Lisa. Well, first, um, hello, everyone. And thank you, Lisa, for having me uh, today. We do come from the same root of patient safety. And I got into this in the early 2000s, right after the Institute of Medicine, as it was called back then, published a report called To Air is Human. And it was the first time in the history of medicine that Physicians and other leaders came out and said, yes, we do a lot of good every day, but sometimes we don't get it right. And when I saw that report, I said, well, I want to find the human face of these adverse events and tell their stories. And that resulted in the first book called The Wall of Silence, the untold story of the medical mistakes that kill and injure millions of Americans. It was a bold book at that time. And what I'm thrilled to say, I told the stories in their words of people who at that time had no voice. And many of them now have gone on to leadership positions, to serve on boards, on committees, have testified in state legislatures, gone up to Congress. It's really remarkable now that they have a voice. And it was such an honor at the beginning uh, to launch that. And then that led to some really wonderful work to be able to actually make care safer when I was at the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, which is a big funder of grants. So we do come from the same route, and here we are today. So we also share a very dear friend, Dr. Harry Lever, and his passion on a particular topic, which is what led him to reach out to you. And Harry has been here on Tales from the Heart a number of times speaking about this issue. And I I have some updates on it, but um, first let's just talk about your book, China Rx, exposing the risk of Americans' dependence on China for medicine. Tell me what brought you to that topic for a book. I stumbled on this subject through a colleague who was testifying on Capitol Hill from Consumer Reports, and they were testifying on supplements coming from China. And so I started digging and doing some some research, and it was shocking what I was finding. And I, I'm sitting at the desk where I was actually doing that research, different laptop, because that was way back. And I said, how come nobody knows this? The kinds of things I was finding, Lisa, this, this was, I started this work in 2014. So here we are, fast forward eight years. And China RX came out in 2018. And it actually predicted a lot of things we saw with COVID. Mm-hmm. It said, that in the event of a natural disaster or a global pandemic, the United States will be waiting in line with other countries for basic medicines. It also predicted that the FDA's ability to protect the American people and to be able to fully perform its regulatory functions would decline. And that has happened. What's different is how rapid the decline in the FDA's ability to protect us, to ensure our generic drugs are safe and effective, have efficacy 
it really has gone down, particularly in regard to China, because FDA employees don't want to go there. U.S. diplomats are being abused in China. So who wants to be the FDA employee that goes there? And that's why the FDA is doing remote inspections by Zoom. Imagine that. You're going to be inspecting a giant chemical plant making pharmaceuticals by Zoom. That is so contrary. So in any event, the book really laid out what the future would be like. It also had recommendations that it's, I step back and I, I marvel at it. It recommended the FDA have more information on supply chain, and it was called before Congress to do just that. Where are we dependent? Industries started looking at their supply chain, and some companies have made steps for risk mitigation. So the recommendations, many of them, have been uh, followed. But we have such a long way to go to ensure that our, the medicines that we take, that we rely on every day, are what they should be. To tie this into, you, you wrote the book and it was published in 2018, pre-pandemic, right. as we just mentioned. But just to bring this up to, is this a current problem or is this a past problem? Two weeks ago, I participated in a meeting in Washington, D.C. It was the clinical uh, or cardiovascular clinical trialists forum. And it had individuals from literally all over the world who participate in clinical trials in all cardiovascular spaces, not just hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, but we were discussed as well. There was one point where during a session, one of the speakers brought up an interesting point that their, their trial data, so they go through all of this effort to prove a particular drug works in a particular way in a particular population. And one of the endpoints for most of these heart failure trials is the elimination of rehospitalization. So you want to keep people out of the hospital. That's a good thing, right? And they found that in real world, it didn't quite match the trial. And they were like, we have to figure out why real world doesn't match the trial. And to me, it was quite simple because a trial that was done on a drug maybe 12 years ago, that drug is now moved on to generic and the patients are likely getting the generic, not the formulary that was actually studied and hospitalization rates go up. So I get up and I make this comment and this man uh, at the next break literally like calls across the room to me as I'm running to the ladies <laughs> room. Lisa, come here. I'm like, I don't know you. Who are you? Why do you know my name? Because I get up and told my name when I made my statement. And he said, I've published on that very point. Mm. And he sent me a link to an article that he published in October of 2017. So right at the same time, you're doing the research for your book. Mm. And the title was Generic Cardiovascular Drugs Difference Might Lead to Adverse Events. And his name was Dr. Paul Poyer from Quebec City in Canada. And you can look up his, his articles explaining that pharmacokinetically 6 to 21% difference of brand name version was used. So you have a high variability in the drug that you're getting. Then it's no surprise that you see increased hospitalization because the drug isn't really what was studied. It's some other version of it. And to some people, this may not sound like a big deal. But if you are stable on a particular formulary of a particular drug, 
and it's switched when you go to the pharmacy, sometimes without your knowledge. You'll just say, oh, it, your pill might look different. It's a different manufacturer. But what's in that pill might actually be different. Can you discuss the Generic Drug Act a little bit and why this is becoming more of a problem for us? Uh, generic drugs, for them to be approved, they have to have studies of bioequivalence. And those studies might involve just 35 to 40 people. And that's at a point in time. And chances are that the generic version has perhaps different excipients or fillers or some things that turn just the chemical active ingredient into our a medicine, a medicine, other things to turn into a pill. And so you have these 35 to 40 people in a bioequivalent study, and that's the basis then that it can go on the market. But what's been happening, Lisa, is that in 2016, there was a, a company that many generic firms use for bioequivalent studies, and the data had to be thrown out because of data integrity issues. It happened again. I believe it was last year, 100 different generic medicines produced by multiple manufacturers or sold by multiple manufacturers. Once again, data integrity issues. The FDA cited this company, it was a company in India. And the FDA did not prevent the drug from getting on the market. It allowed it to be sold. It's absolutely stunning. So at the very outset, we have these products. Unlike the branded ones that have to go through very significant testing for stability, for dissolution, right amount of active ingredient has to work. We hope. But here, don't have that same standard. So it's right at the very outset of generics. In many ways, the generic system was based on trust. And now that we have outsourced so much of it in the name of cheap. I was shocked at how, how the outsourcing was done in the 90s, especially in 2000s. And back then the FDA wasn't even in, say in the case of China, was not even there doing inspections. They didn't even inspect. Well, the, the uh, contaminated heparin, you know, China Rx starts out with a story of a Johns Hopkins trained physician. He walks into the Mayo Clinic in Scottsdale, Arizona, because he had a stomach ulcer. He self-diagnosed, otherwise healthy guy, mid-40s. It was late at night, and they said, stay overnight, and we'll scope you in the morning. And within 24 hours, he was in multiple organ failure, and the doctors had no idea what was going on. Wow. The following week, he had to have his heart removed. He was an, on an artificial heart machine, tethered to it by a three-foot cord. And a couple weeks later, he's watching the news, sitting in bed with his wife next to him, who's also a physician. And he sees a news report coming out of St. Louis Children's Hospital that contaminated heparin was found. And the FDA launched a national and international investigation of what happened. And it turns out a U.S.-based company in the name of cheap, source the active ingredient uh, from China. And it was a fake substitute for the real active ingredient because it was cheaper. Hmm. And the company never inspected the plant over there. The FDA never inspected the plant. This was 2007, 2008. And according to his wife, Dr. Allen turned to his wife and said, 
oh my God, I got a lot of heparin. Was it contaminated? And they tried um, a transplant a couple months later. And as he was being wheeled in the OR, he said to his wife, if I don't come out, um, go after them. And for 10 years, she fought a battle. And one of the few cases to survive multi-district litigation, because she was a physician, and they couldn't mess with her. She said, if it wasn't your drug, what is it that caused my husband within minutes of going into heart, complete heart failure and multiple organ failure? So her case survived the multi-district litigation, went to a court in Arizona, and there was a settlement right before the jury trial was convened. Did her husband survive the transplant? No, he did not. So... Um, I was, it was shocking to, shocking on several fronts that we were outsourcing to a country with virtually no standards. From the highest standards in the world. Now, China has made a lot of progress since then. However, on the generic space, and this is on us, why is it that we're getting so many substandard generic drugs? It's because you've got the big players, the middlemen, who are looking for the cheapest possible product. So they make more money on the margin and they scour the earth. And as long as the FDA allows it to come in the country, then it'll be sold in the marketplace and retail pharmacies and hospitals. I uh, uncovered a memo back from 1996 written by a very dedicated internal uh, uh, FDA employee. I think it's in chapter two of China RX. And he says, we have no idea where these bulk drugs are coming from and they could get to the president. And we didn't do anything. Congress did nothing for, let's see, 1996, for about uh, 16 years. Uh, so I have to tell you, in full yeah. disclosure, yeah, we didn't pre-discuss this. My father got some bad heparin, too. Oh, my goodness. He had had open heart surgery in 2006. And and ended up on dialysis um, till the end of his life in 2008. And at one point he got really sick again. And it turned out that it was the heparin. He had a bad dose of heparin. Um, it, his kidneys were already down, but it took him out the rest of the way. And he ended up spending the last 18 months of his life on dialysis. Oh, Lisa, I'm so, so, so sorry. And you know what this speaks to? Same thing happened with blood pressure medicines, with carcinogens. Mm -hmm. They're there, but our surveillance system is, does, is virtually non-existent post-market when products are out on the market. We don't have a way of ongoing testing. The FDA is the only entity out there, and it's, it, it's not a system that works. In so some ways, I can't blame the FDA because you've got thousands and thousands of products. Right. So we've got to come up with a different way uh, to assure that the medicines that are dispensed in hospitals and in retail pharmacies are what they're supposed to be. So let's talk a little bit more in specifics on what the Generic Drug Act was. It was originally passed in the 80s. Can you talk about what they thought was close enough for a generic drug? Sure. Well, it was passed in 1984. It was bipartisan support. Um, Hatch Waxman, a Republican and a Democrat. And the aim was why, for products that give, give uh, brand name drugs certain patent life 
And then after a certain number of years, when they recoup their investment, let's have additional manufacturers come in and make that product. Sounds reasonable. Made sense. And in the early days, there were companies that actually made the brand name drugs that then made their own generic version, which is basically the same. But then you have other actors that came in, and this really came into play with the, uh, in 2018, contaminated blood pressure medicines like Valsartan. Where we've evolved to since 1984 is that there is a global scramble to find the cheapest way to make a generic so they can get more market share. And again, from the U.S. perspective, that's on us because multi-billion dollar companies on the Fortune 10 and 20 list want to make the most margin. And so they migrate to these manufacturers and buy them. They don't test them. They're not in the plants inspecting them. And in China RX, there's a, a quote from a lawyer who does business helps a company, U.S. companies doing business in China. And I said, well, what's going on here? And he said, well, the attitude over there is like this. We take no liability for our products. It's buyer beware. And if you think about it, if you get a bad drug from a faraway country, you have no legal recourse. You even have a hard time figuring out where the drug was made. Exactly right. Let me just lean into one thing and then I'll talk about my own experience with Tacrolimus, my transplant med. But just to make sure everybody understands the Generic Drug Act a little bit deeper, drugs don't have to be an exact equivalent. They can be between, what is it, 80, 85% and 120% of the original approved medication. So if you're getting a drug that's lower on the dosing and then you get one that's higher on the dosing just by the way it's made, you could be underdosed or overdosed and you could feel very differently. This has become very evident to many of our constituents at the HCMA because we take a lot of metropolol, which is manufactured by like everybody all over the world. And if you get one manufacturer, you might be getting 80% of the drug. And another one, you might be getting 120% of the drug, but it's not just the concentration of the active ingredient. It's how it dissolved with an extended release element, which extended release drugs weren't even available in the 80s when the basis of the current Generic Drug Act was originally brought to law. So how are we supposed to know what's in our drugs? We don't. The whole system was based on trust, but now we're at a point where we have to trust, but verify, not even trust. We have to verify and then trust. And you're right. I think there are different kinds of drugs. Some have really narrow therapeutic avenues. Mm -hmm. So so they're tighter, but different drugs may have broader uh, therapeutic ranges. Uh, But certainly, you know, that the medicines that are important to, um, uh, to people in the community here today. So, but it's a real problem and there's no ongoing testing. When I testified before Congress in 2019, I said the FDA needs to be testing and testing every batch. 
and a very senior official from the FDA actually stayed in the back of the room of the hearing after the, that their panel was done, which is highly unusual. And I understand this person was shaking their head no. I understand that it's a gargantuan task, but I think still, what is the opportunity for the FDA to bring in more, more um, eyes and ears for authorized testing entities to do some basic surveillance testing of generic drugs because we've got some really serious problems. So one of the problems that affects a percentage of our community, but not all, is transplant medication. So I'll tell you a personal story. So as as my community knows, I transplanted in 2017. I'm a very lucky transplant recipient in that I only need to take one form of anti-rejection medication, immunosuppressant medication. It's called tacrolimus. Um, it's a specialty drug, so it's very expensive. Mm-hmm. I have to get it through a specialty pharmacy, which is in and of itself kind of an annoying process to go through for a prescription every month to three months, depending upon who's providing it for me. And I have been on one manufacturer since the beginning. So that manufacturer went into shortage and I needed to get an alternative And I was very specific on the players that I knew were problematic in generic drugs. So I specifically said no to a particular manufacturer, Dr. Reddy, who has a very questionable track record. I said, don't send me any of that. And they said, "Okay, fine. We have Sandoz available. And I'm a Jersey girl. Sandoz was a Jersey company, literally miles down the road. It was a name I was familiar with. And I had the incorrect assumption that because it was a Jersey-based company originally that somehow the manufacturing would be safer or, you know, maybe here in Jersey or in the United States. Well, I found out that it was not manufactured here only after, because I know about this problem, I went for blood work a week after switching to this drug. And for those of you who don't know, tacrolimus is a leveling drug. You stay at a certain level um, and that's your therapeutic dose. You can't go under five, then it's not considered therapeutic. Mm-hmm. You don't want to be over 10 because then you're overdosed and you start shaking. I had been in the sweet spot for like three years already of a like seven. Seven was my number, 7.2, 7.4, 6.9. I was always around that seven number. With this generic formulation, I was a 4.3 in a week. Mm-hmm. And I immediately contacted my specialty pharmacy. I said, this is not the same. And they're like, well, why don't you just take more? I'm like, "Um, first of all, why is my specialty pharmacy who just saved money on the cheap drugs trying to tell me to change my dose, not my transplant program, but the pharmacist. And I said, no, I'd rather have a different formulation so I can stay on my dose. And we were able to track down a couple of bottles of the, you know, the shortage med and they got me a new prescription. They wanted to charge me the full freight price for it. And I said over my dead body, which if I continue to take this stuff that you sent me, you might see sooner than later. They got me the new stuff. They paid for it, but I had a fight 
And it scared the hell out of me. Of course. And then I find out this is not an unknown problem. It has been known in the transplant community that tacrolimus is highly variable based on manufacturer and that patients really need to be aware of what their manufacturer is. And it almost doesn't matter which one you're on as long as you're stably on that one. But then the question is, if you're on one of these ones, that's very low dose. What else is in that pill? We don't even know. So how do we as patients take care of ourselves and make sure we're not getting garbage meds? Well, one of the promising, and by the way, I, I think this conversation can be quite concerning uh, to, to viewers and listeners. And I like to say the aim is not to frighten, but to enlighten and to make us aware and I to go agree. with our eyes open and to be aware of our body and the impact of, and if you get a new prescription or a refill, and if something doesn't seem right, just as you did, Lisa, got to go right in and, and really be on it. And contact Lisa and say, what, what's, what's uh, your advice? Very important for us. And I say the same thing to physicians. You might find a situation where a patient is not recovering as expected. And regrettably, now we have to ask the question, is it the, is it the generic drug? So here's a, a very promising activity that's underway. There was a new nonprofit started in 2018 called Civica Rx. And it was started by very large health systems that have been very concerned about shortages of basic generic medicines. And there are shortages because of what I call manipulation in the marketplace. And these shortages have gone on for a very long time. And Civica came along and said, well, we're going to fix shortages. And what they have done is they identify trustworthy manufacturers in trustworthy countries. They go inspect their facilities. They pay them a fair price. They give them long-term contracts. They do not scour the earth looking for the cheapest drug this month, but they build long-term relationships with their suppliers and they have their products tested. So within the first year, they, and they do it through contract manufacturing with reputable companies. In the first year, they deliver 20 different generics to their member hospitals. The next year, another 20 and another 20. And during COVID, the hospitals that were part of this, they did not have any shortages of those drugs that were supplied by Civica. So this mm. is what happens when you have people with a moral compass that think about the patient first and develop a system around that and bypass all of this other other stuff that goes on that makes life so difficult for people who have this enough going on in their lives. And so they've built a manufacturing facility in Petersburg, Virginia, and they'll be making insulin and they'll be selling it. I think it's a Humalog and two other products. They'll be doing the bio, generic biosimilar version of it, and they'll be selling it for no more than $30, which is a dramatic reduction in what the cost is now. So we need more of these kinds of good players who are showing that it is possible to supply a quality product at a fair price if you have the right intention and purpose in mind. And we have to keep growing it. So they've started with some outpatient products. The first is um, the insulin. Then there's a prostate cancer drug that was selling for thousands of dollars. They'll sell it for about 1700 Again, the, 
takes time to get these process these products manufactured and out on the market, but they're really doing a great service to patients. And we need more of these types of innovations and innovators. And it's supported by the hospitals all chipped in, quote, capital to launch this, uh, launch this endeavor. So I have tremendous respect for what they're, what they're doing, and they really are a sign of hope um, for, for patients. We have a long way to go, but they're showing that everybody wringing their hand about shortages, and nobody has ever done it, forgive me, a damn thing about it. Mm-hmm. And the ones talking about shortages all the time are the same people who've created it and who've made profit on it. And they don't care if there are shortages, to be very frank. That's, that, is the, that is the truth. And what happens, you outsource it to one or two companies, they run into problems, and then you have a shortage. Or you have world, world competition for the same drugs. Think of it, the whole world was competing for the same basic essential generic drugs that you need to treat people in ICUs during the surge in hospitalizations. That's insane. China control, by the way, China controls 90% of the key starting materials for all our generics. Think Why? about that. Why? Because they undertook a smart strategy, an industrial strategy to become the pharmacy to the world. It's like rare earths. They control about 90% of all the rare earths for hybrid cars and some of the advanced you know, technology products. So we have to you know, re- begin to rebuild our industrial base and make things here. And FDA is coming in and inspecting these facilities. And Civica just is building a new testing facility right near its uh, manufacturing place. Because quality is job one. If not, then just get out of the business. So uh, it takes a long time to retool, to bring this manufacturing back. Uh, but it's starting and there are good people. And it's not going to be the big players. As I think Einstein said, the people who helped create a problem are not going to be the ones to solve it. So we need to have room in for uh, people who come in with a different intention and are willing to come up with different models to make it work. So there's hope out there on the horizon. And maybe down the road, they can make tacrolimus uh, for patients post-heart transplant. Yeah, I, I got to reach back out to Civica. I had talked to them when they were starting out, I'm like, how can we help? And they're like, we don't really have a spot for you yet. So I, I realized that I haven't reached back out to them in about two or three years. So I'm going to reach back out and see if there's anything that we can assist with on that end. There's another nonprofit that has started called Americans for Safe Drugs, if I got the name right. Yeah, Americans for Safe Drugs. And we have both been speaking to them about what we could do to share stories, to raise awareness about the fact that generic drugs can be a problem. And and again, I don't want to frighten everybody just because you sure. have a generic, it's not good, but there's a lot of in, inconsistencies in production, which make it a little complicated to manage. Now, in the HCM space, we have some brand new drugs to market that are just being developed right now. So those drugs are not going to hit generic for a decade because they're for a a rare disease state. So they get a little longer patent life. So we're not going to have to worry about, you know, Mavicampton or Cam's IOS going to generic anytime soon. We have brand name, but when it does go, it's going to be very, it's a complicated compound. I don't know if anybody's really going to be interested in making it, but that's a decade away and they have a decade to figure it out, but there's new classes of drugs. So they're not the problem. It's the tried and true beta blockers, calcium channel blockers, sodium channel blockers, antiarrhythmics. 
which are the basis of the toolbox of treatment for hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Mm. So metropolol is one of the most common drugs prescribed in the United States. Mm. I think it's ninth or 10th most common drug. And it is manufactured in China and India and in great numbers. And it is like, it's pennies a pill to make. But number one, the quality is variable. And number two, you're probably paying an out-of-pocket copay for certain drugs on your formulary. And what you're paying in your copays is probably well more than it actually costs them to buy. So there's something about truth and pricing through the pharmacy benefit managers that we also need to speak up about because you're actually putting money in their pocket every time you're paying a copay on a drug that costs them pennies, but they're Mm -hmm. charging you 20 bucks for your Mm out-of-pocket. So we need to think about what we're actually paying for. And remember that many of these PBMs are now actually owned by the insurance companies. So we've, we've allowed a system to grow and to permeate because it's the way that it is rather than saying it shouldn't be this way. The rebates that your PBM gets don't come back into your pocket as an, as an ill person taking a regular maintenance medication goes back to your insurance company and it goes into their pocket. And you're paying premiums for them to make money off of you getting a prescription. It's a little backwards, people. It's a little backwards. Right. You know, and that's uh, all very well said, uh, Lisa. And another wrinkle is that there's one thing when a product comes off the manufacturing line, but then a lot of these products are very, can be sensitive to temperature and humidity. So if you're doing mail order, and shows up at your door and as much as you can be there when it's delivered so you can have it in the you know proper temperature control that will help prevent the the product from degrading very important to keep in mind you can't control everything but what you can control is to bring it in and so even if you're traveling and you put it in your luggage and it's you know could be really hot or freezing cold got to be mindful of that take a look at what the temperature is it should be for your drugs to maintain it's, it's a very very important factor also humidity control so there was a, a company making a product and they moved their manufacturing facility to another place that's very humid and they had to come up with a new formulation because the humidity was causing the pills to degrade very quickly. There's a reason that they say to maintain your medicines uh, at room temperature or whatever it might be, read the, read the insert or go online. Uh, take that seriously because it helps maintain the stability of your product that you're taking. Let's go back to tacrolimus for just a moment. Sure. It should not be over 110 or 120 degrees. I forget what the insert said, but it was one of those. And I recall a summer day when the UPS driver, was a young lady, came to my door delivering the pills. And I saw her getting out of the car and she just looked like she was whipped. Like she looked like the heat had gotten to her. So I brought her some cold water and a couple bottles. I'm like, here, like I thought she was going to pass out on my, on my oh walk. She was that out of it. She said, oh, my God, the back of my truck is 140 degrees. Oh, my goodness. And immediately I'm like, oh, dear God, 
any pharmaceuticals in the back of that vehicle had been toasting for hours. And it scared the hell out of me. If we're not temperature controlling those trucks, what happens when it's like on a cargo you know, ship or in an airplane and it's sitting out on a tarmac and it's in the back of a mail truck and it's in the back of a UPS truck. And you're going, um, this isn't working people. It's not working. And we need to, we need to like be real and come up with real logistical solutions to these real world problems. We're not trying to blame the delivery people Mm -hmm. for this. We're just acknowledging that those trucks get really hot. And, and, and then when I first, the first year I got tacrolimus, my, my pharmacy would always deliver it in a styrofoam container with ice packs. Oh my goodness. Mm. And then they stopped delivering them when styrofoam and ice packs. I'm like, is it not still a problem? And then they were, I was told that there's, too much of an environmental impact on the styrofoam because it can't be thrown away in some communities that they had to stop doing the styrofoam containers. Okay. Well, can we come up with biodegradable boxes? I don't know, but we're not getting them delivered in, in the proper fashion. So uh, Kim commented here on our Facebook stream that people have nothing to do with this. It's insurance and government have the have the roles. Well, I'm going to bring you back to a, a document that's a couple of years old, and it starts with we the people. So we the people are the government. We the people are the employees of the insurance company, and we the people need to facilitate change because this isn't getting better. Rosemary, what are the potential solutions to the problems? Well, I think it's um, it's very easy to feel a sense of powerlessness. You know, what can I do? But I, I, what you and I have done, and what others can do, we're just private. I say, just we're just private citizens. Yep. And you see a problem, and you try to figure out ways to begin to raise awareness of it. And if you keep at it, typically good people will pop up. And you keep moving forward to make a difference. And you have to go with a sense that, while I can't change the whole thing. I can change a piece of it. And even that is really good. And if we all worked on different pieces and, and work together, we can make a difference without question. And I think uh, for those of us you know, who are people who might be taking medicines, you know, simple things. Like if you have your medicines in your purse, don't leave them in a hot car or in freezing temperatures while you go into the grocery store. Some, so some yeah. simple things that, that you can do. Check your uh, bottle for your manufacturer. Ask your pharmacist who the manufacturer is. It's available. If you can't find it on your bottle, ask your pharmacist. Is this the same manufacturer? Is this the same plant? What, whatever information they can give you the best. And if you do switch your brand, keep a lock. How are you feeling? And t- here I'm speaking specifically to people with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Right. Um, but for whatever you're taking your, your drugs for, 
in some states, if they change your manufacturer, I think it's Utah for epilepsy, you're not, they're not allowed to switch manufacturers without the approval of the doctor because so many drugs, when you switch them, they don't work the same way for epilepsy. We need to have these laws maybe in more states that if there's a switch of manufacturer, you should be notified and so should your doctor. But if you have HCM and you're on a beta blocker and the most common beta blocker is metropolol and you're not taking Toprol XL name brand or authorized generic, um, if you're just on a generic and you feel a little different, your heart rate's a little higher, you're a little bit more short of breath, acknowledge that you've changed manufacturers and talk to your doctor about adjusting your dose or maybe going back to your pharmacist and saying, I want to go back on the manufacturer that I had been on previously. It's okay to, to have those conversations. It's okay to ask, where was this made? And I want to be clear about something else because this can sound a little bit not nice. I'm just going to call it not nice. <laughs> the people of India and the people of China, I'm sure there's lots of fantastic human beings there. Their manufacturing processes are different. So when we say when they're processed in India or China, it's not a slam against the entire nation of China or the entire nation of India. It is the fact that they do not have the same levels of oversight on their manufacturing processes and they're shipping their products all over the world and it's not impacting their people to the same degree. And we need to be aware that we as U.S., Canadian and other citizens, we're getting a lot of our, our drugs from these places and we don't have systems in place to inspect everything that's coming in. Do we have a right to expect that from the FDA? Well, if you want it, we're going to have to pay for it. If we're going to pay for it, that's either going to come from the manufacturers to pay for it or the taxpayers to pay for it. I would like to see a surcharge for every batch that comes in from a manufacturer. They have to pay for it to be evaluated. It should not go to the taxpayers. It shouldn't come out of federal funds. It should be paid for by the people who are making money off of selling these drugs. That sounds very logical to me. It does not appear to be currently part of the law. So it would have to be made a law that they will have to pay to have their products inspected by an agency in which the U.S. government feels is appropriate so there would be a contracting process to get that contract who's going to inspect the drugs. And there's going to have to be a degree of trust on who's going to be doing that work. I think it should all be paid for by those who are selling us drugs and making millions, if not billions of dollars on the backs of the ill. Maybe the insurance company should kick in a little something to pay and make sure that they're getting the right quality. When you go back and you see this article published in 2017 out of Quebec that, you know, generic drugs might lead to adverse events, we're all paying for that in healthcare costs. The more hospitalizations, the more expensive healthcare becomes. We want to keep people safe and at home and out of the hospital. The only way to do that is to ensure that we have quality generic drugs available for the masses. Can I yeah. jump in with a quick story? Please. This is a true story from someone who has built pharmaceutical manufacturing plants here in the United States and elsewhere and operates them. Very fine, fine person. 
He told me the story of uh, when he went to get his generic blood pressure medicine refilled. He went to a retail pharmacy. It was $157.50. And he said, guess how much the manufacturer would be paid for that 90-day supply? Four so bucks. I'm going to let you take a guess. What do you think? Four bucks. A dollar. A dollar. So what we have is... I'm going to call it, it's a corrupt system where, I guess, a repeated multi-billion dollar U.S. companies scour the globe looking for the cheapest product. And these same players are bypassing good quality U.S. manufacturers that have never had any problem with the FDA, never, no warning letter, no nothing. They bypass them to save even a few cents or a buck for a 30-day refill. talk about That's, what a warning letter is? An FDA warning letter comes after an FDA. FDA's main vehicle to ensure that our generic drugs are safe is to conduct on-site inspections of manufacturing plants where our medicines are being made. As mentioned earlier, these can be huge facilities, and these are highly technical inspections. They look at the your called the paperwork, your software, and your quality control system. They look at where you get your inputs from. Are they coming from regulated sources? And if there if the FDA finds that there are violations of FDA regulations for how medicines are made, there's a whole there's a sort of a I call it a recipe book for how every drug in used in western medicine should be made and it has to be made to those specifications and if it's not if there's concerns about that manufacturing process the fda will send what's called a warning letter to the manufacturer in extreme cases like with the belsartan that had huge amounts of carcinogens coming from a plant in china the fda then banned that product from coming any product coming from that plant from the United States for several years. So that's what a warning letter is. But nowadays, as we mentioned earlier, without the FDA doing boots on the ground inspections and doing inspections by Zoom, that's like inspecting a, an airplane crash site, NTSB goes, and they're doing the inspection by Zoom. So we're really losing a lot of very important information, but that's what an FDA warning letter is. So it's really on, on us, I say us, on... American companies that are doing this to the American people. And they have great connections on Capitol Hill. You see them up there all the time lobbying. They control the narrative about shortages when shortages are totally preventable. So um, that's why we need alternative means of new players coming in, doing it for the right reasons. But in the meantime, we have to work on it, as you say, fight for it. One of the things that we have done, I've, I've, this is not my first podcast on this topic. We spoke to another author, Catherine Ebon, at the start of the pandemic on, on her book, Bottle of Lies, in which she actually features an HCM patient who had an adverse reaction. She was a patient of Dr. Levers, and that can be found in our archives here. But talking about the stories and the personal aspect of who's been harmed, and even if it's, I, I had a a couple of days of extra palpitations. That's distracting. That is, that makes you feel unsecure, insecure about your health. That is mentally exhausting and has physical consequences. Mm -hmm. 
So if you have had an experience with a generic drug where you have become more symptomatic, had to go to the emergency room, doctor, change the meds back, and you have HCM and you want to share your story, please contact us. We will write that story up. We will get it out there and we will share what happened. And we will also communicate with lawmakers at the appropriate time and members of the FDA as to why we need to do better. This doesn't happen in a vacuum. We all have to use our voices and our stories to facilitate change. You know, I, I got started in all of this work because my sister was harmed. And I wanted to ensure that nobody else's sister was harmed by the medical system. But we're now in a whole different time. And the amount of harm that could come from a couple of bad batches or a lower, you know, a, a compound that's not as active or that has what's called dissolution rates. We didn't even talk about what a dissolution rate is, but how the drug absorbs into your body. If you're on a long acting drug and the thing absorbs into your body in two hours, you're going 10 hours without drug in your system. And you might start off feeling fine and then you feel crappy and then you take your pill again and you feel fine again and you're going up and down and up and down. This is not a good way to live. And it's not the way the drugs are supposed to act. It's supposed to stay constant in your system so that you can get the therapeutic benefit. So we need to do more work there. So what else are our solutions other than to document and communicate with our elected officials? Well, I, I think the FDA is very uh, constrained in what it can do in terms of testing. Mm. If these were tires that Costco was selling and some were found to be defective and harmed drivers on you know, Interstate 95, somebody would do something about it. And Costco would probably, would no doubt, change its manufacturer and have required the manufacturer to have their tires tested if you want us Costco to sell them. So and I think there's, I think I see growing a market pressure along these lines, Lisa, that people are waking up. And when I uh, did grand rounds at several hospitals, I said to the, there's some very senior people in the room, I said, why do you tolerate suppliers that supply you with substandard drugs that are often in short supply? Why do you tolerate it? Did you get an You're answer? Well, that was in 2019 and beyond. And I, people are waking up. There are cracks in the, cracks in the veneer. And some important players are expressing great displeasure at what's taking place now. And so we have to take advantage of that in a good sense and to use it to make the system better and to change what we're buying, to use our purchasing power differently. That's what the Civica hospitals are doing. And um, I can't wait until they have more products available at retail pharmacies for the American people. There are a couple of labs that have attempted to do batch analysis of certain drugs. It hasn't had the impact that we thought it might have. They ended up being um, accused of junk science. 
when they were evaluating these drugs. And I looked at the science and it looked pretty solid to me, but I think it was a little embarrassing to our healthcare system. So they were vilified. How are we going to get to the truth as to what's in this pill that we're taking? Where, where can we trust? A civic is doing a great job. Americans for safe drugs are trying to bring manufacturing back to the United States, but house and Senate want inexpensive drugs. They, they aren't seeing what the complications here are. I do believe that this is a completely bipartisan situation. Everybody takes drugs, whether you're in one party, the other, or you're an independent or whatever your affiliation is. We all care about taking well, care of our health. Well, that margin of $156 and 50 cents and where's it going? Some of that money goes into campaign contributions and people that put a narrative out there on Capitol Hill, mm -hmm. which is nothing to do with what you and I are talking about, which is the reality on the ground. And that's what we have to break through. I, you know, I think one thing that is changing, and this is no disrespect to the FDA, because I truly believe there are really good people there that want to do the right thing. Mm -hmm. But the notion that the FDA is able to protect the public from unsafe generic drugs, and I say it with great regret, that that is no longer the case. This is a different world now. And it's not enough to say, well, we're going to buy this, and the FDA said this. Well, that, that doesn't work anymore. It's verify and then I'll trust. And that just changing that, that perception, that narrative would be huge. But that's also an atomic bomb on the whole business model of cheap outsourcing to make money. But if that's what, that's what needs to be done because people's lives are at stake. And meanwhile, I'm hopeful that there will be more uh, interest in diversifying supply chains to more trustworthy manufacturers in trustworthy countries. And Lisa, you and I will, you know, will continue to work on this. Our paths have crossed in, I think, a very opportune time. And the power of patient stories, don't underestimate it. And I'll say this, in China RX, um, I wrote about the heparin story and I asked a former FDA official, so how come this doesn't come to light? And he said, what Washington needs to move is a body count. That's what he said. And regrettably with heparin, we had a body count. And so we have to tell our stories of those who survived and maybe those who didn't. And hold people accountable. That's a frightening prospect. It is. It, it absolutely is. So I tried the whole national security route as, as a first cut because that would certainly draw a lot more interest. I hate to say it. Mm -hmm. And um, for a while that resonated, but now I think Washington is, I call it, it's in the stage of it's, it's paralyzed. And it's policies made top down. Yep. And I still remember the day when it was bottom up and people would go in and as citizens and make change. So I think for right now, that's, it's difficult to find a legislative solution. So I'm looking at more discontent in the private sector, whether it's patients, big purchasers, those who can't get drugs for patients, and to use that as a, as a vehicle for change. 
the problem is not small. It's not. It's it's truly. In in my 27 years of patient advocacy, it is one of the larger problems that nobody wants to talk about. And it impacts almost every household. Um, And it's not it's not even just the prescription medication. It's the supplements, too. Yeah, absolutely. We're not even talking about supplements and, and who's not investigating what you're actually taking and bringing back Costco into the conversation. I have to give props. Costco is now evaluating all of their pharmaceuticals or their supplements and and such, but they're inspecting them to make sure that there's nothing that's not on the label in the bottle. Hmm. And I really have to give props to Costco for taking that extra step and cost which I'm sure they passed on to the manufacturers of the supplements themselves to make sure that what you're buying there is actually what you think you're buying. So I get no funding. They're not a sponsor, but Mm -hmm. hey, Costco, nicely done. And if you want to be a sponsor of Tales from the Heart, call me. Um, Mm -hmm. But I don't think that's what we're looking for here. Just looking for trusted sources. So, well, on that point, Lisa, can I just jump in? Sure. I no financial interest here, but there's some vitamin, the Kirkland vitamins in Costco, they have a seal of USP, which is US Pharmacopeia, which is the standard holder for all Western, Western medicines. They've been around for almost, you know, I think it's 100, 200 years. And so at least Costco took that effort to somehow engage US Pharmacopeia. And so you're right, that is a step forward that shoppers can have more assurance that at least somebody uh, has taken a look at, at these products. And I hope we have more of that. I do too. Maybe maybe they'll open up a full pharmacy service and they'll use the same theory in their pharmacy. And and then I can go, well, still wouldn't be able to go there for my specialty meds, but hey, what are you going to do? Okay. So we've had a couple of comments on our our social feed that this whole thing just feels so wrong. (laughs) And it is. And, and you just to break it down, my, my mother gave me some advice one time she was sitting at our kitchen table and she said, don't be a public worrier. I thought, well, we have to fix things, don't we, in the world? And as I thought about it over the years, what she meant was do what you can, find something that you can work on and keep at it and do your best. And you can't fix everything, but what you can fix, you can still make a difference in people's lives. And we shouldn't have to worry about all this. We should be able to trust. But it's without doubt, advocacy and speaking up to show what the status quo is. It's a revolutionary act in many ways. But you know, there are a lot of good people who know that there's a problem. They work in organizations and they can't, if they say anything, they're gone. That's why it's taken me as a private citizen. I don't know if you know, Lisa, no one pays me to do this. I do it because you have to care. And you have to speak up. If you see something, you got to say something, you got to do something. So we try to find a niche where we can make a difference. And this one, I think, has legs because you're right, it affects everybody from all walks of life. You know, just a story of our patient advocacy. When I was uh, had the pleasure of engaging with Consumers Union, uh, which is part of Consumer Reports, it was some of, I'm sure many of uh, your listeners and viewers will realize that Years ago, hospitals assumed that hospital-acquired infections were just, well, they just happened. Uh And there was nothing you could do about it. And that changed. 
And you know how it changed? This is how it changed. Consumers Union was a invited people who were harmed in a campaign called the Stop Hospital Infections. And they had people from all walks of life in multiple states, and they got legislation passed in about 20-something states for hospitals to report infections. Mm-hmm. And plus, there was a study that came out and said uh, for central line-associated bloodstream infections, if you follow a protocol, you have a decline in those infections by 66%. came out of Johns Hopkins. That led to Medicare and Medicaid now making it part of their quality and, and payment system. For hospitals, and that this is why hospitals now have been working for maybe 10 years to reduce hospital acquired infections because it was the public. It was people like you and me and the people here today that are joining in. It was that voice that made a difference. Speaking up, sharing stories that aren't always happy, good stories, right? They're right. typically, I was hurt, a loved one died. But if we don't talk about it, We don't change anything. And from my perspective, I don't have unrealistic expectations on the FDA. The work is hard. It's very, very hard and it's complex and there's so many players. But at the end of the day, what is their mandate to provide oversight to ensure Americans have safe drugs and safe food sources? And if they're unable to meet that challenge because the world has gotten more complex and there's more drugs and there's more things to look at, then we need to be realistic and say, okay, we need to pivot a bit here and we need to find alternative solutions to these problems. And rather than pointing the fingers at each other and saying, it's yours, it's yours, we step in together and say, it's ours to fix I want to live in a world where I don't have to worry that the pills I'm taking to stay alive are actually what I think they're supposed to be. And that's what I do every month when I get my pills. I check my manufacturer. I make sure nobody made a mistake in the pharmacy. And then I hope to God that that batch was okay. And I went and I got my blood work because I just got a new batch of pills. Mm -hmm. And interestingly, I now have an opposite problem as I had with the Sandoz thing that we talked about earlier. And my new blood work showed my, my therapeutic dose was closer to nine, which would explain why I've been getting a little shaky in the morning. So now maybe this batch has a slightly higher active ingredient. It's still in therapeutic range. It's not too, too high, but I feel a difference. Mm -hmm. So this is, this is my every day. This is my, I wonder what's in that pill. And twice a day, every day for the rest of my time on this earth, I will take those pills. Mm-hmm. You know, Lisa, um, the first book I did, Wall of Silence, that title came from a mom whose son, two-year, two-year-old son died after having his tonsils taken out. Totally preventable. She kept asking for help. And, and so she uh, came to be an extraordinary patient advocate in Long Island educating people and making care safe. And so our job and what I learned is you have to break the wall of silence and collecting those stories, which wall of silence is a bunch of stories. Mm-hmm. And it resonated with physicians and nurses because it's real. They see it every day. So I, I really applaud your effort to 
even if you do it by dictation, just dictate it and get a draft and just document. Document, document, document. Um, so we have our share your story system. You can log on to our website and um, say, I'm interested in volunteering and my volunteerism is to share my story and we will help you write it up. We will help put the narrative together and we will share that story on our platform. It's critically important. And, and I guess as out of full disclosure, I, I do have to talk about something that happened before my sister died, actually five years to the day before she died. And, and you and I have not really talked about this one either, but in terms of patient safety issues, maybe one of the reasons I am so fiercely passionate about getting patients to the right care is because at the ripe old age of 21, a medical error almost killed me. Mm-hmm. And that was I had dental work done, emergency dental work done two days before my wedding. I had an emergency root canal. I'd been diagnosed with HCM since age 12 and I had obstruction. So I had turbulent blood flow in my heart. Mm-hmm. And um, I was told by this dentist previously, I'd been going to him for a little while that quote, genetic disorders didn't need to be premedicated before dental work. On my honeymoon, um, I started to have numbness down my left side and on my left face. And at one point, my whole left arm went completely numb. I'm like, what is going on? And it was on my honeymoon. And I thought I pinched a nerve in my neck, sleeping on the plane. And um, no, I got home and I had a full-blown stroke at the age of 21. Um, I'm permanently blind in a portion of my left eye. When I'm tired, you will see my face has a slightly different shape to it because the eye will droop. Mm-hmm. It's just the reason people never see me without eye makeup because my eyes are different sizes mm-hmm. um, and I disguise it. When I'm tired, I'll drag my left leg. Um, to this day, it's been 32 years since my stroke oh my and it all could have been avoided. I have brain damage because of it. Um, my, my heart was damaged. Did it help me get to transplant sooner? I'm not sure, but I think so. So I've been harmed and I didn't know how to advocate for myself at the age of 21. And we don't think of 21 year olds as needing to be educated about the risk of stroke after going to a dentist because the dentist is supposed to know. So yeah, that was, that was legal action. And I actually lost that legal fight because they couldn't prove that the infection entered my body at that moment, even though they kind of suspected it did, Mm -hmm. but there was some complicating factors on the case that I was unaware of as a 20 something year old trying to defend something. But at the end of the day, I was harmed. My sister was harmed. My father was harmed. When so many members of your family are harmed by medical mistakes, there's a good chance you might become a patient advocate <laughs> and help others not go down that path. So, well, at least you are you are remarkable, and I said that from the first uh, time I met you. I have tremendous admiration for what you do, and your knowledge and your willingness to help others. And that's a great gift that you give uh, to so many. So deepest respect to you and deepest admiration. And likewise, for taking your talents as a writer and being able to articulate the problem so clearly and and to get out there and to go to the Capitol Hill and 
and testify and, and get involved and say, hey, it's wrong. And look at all of these people that are being harmed together. And, I think, and here's what we can do. And here's what we can do to make it better. And right. it's always, you know, my husband has a favorite expression and I steal it occasionally. Are you a problem identifier or a problem solver? And we can all identify and point fingers. That's easy. Coming up with solutions, that's hard because you have to listen to all parties and find a solution that actually works for all of us without just going, well, they're idiots and I know better. No, we all have something to offer here. Industry, manufacturers, government officials, patients, physicians, hospital systems, insurance companies, payers, PBMs. We're all in this together and we need to stop being short-sighted. And I hope Lisa, our continued uh, collaboration and staying in touch will help us um, help me learn something more. I already have learned a lot from you and your community that uh, we can find a path forward. I'm still going to continue to think about tacrolimus and what we can do about that because it's so important. It's life-sustaining like so many other really important products. So I know we're going to continue working on this together and hopefully come up with a solution for many, many people. I do hope so. And Rosemary, I thank you so much for taking the time today and the attempt for two weeks ago when heating issues and real life (laughs) came jumping in and made us push this off to today. But I appreciate your rescheduling. And I, I think over the next year or so, as we make some efforts in this space that we'll come back on to Tales from the Heart and tell the updates to the story and keep everybody trailing along with us. These are important conversations. They are not going to just disappear. And we're going to have to figure out new ways of of getting this done. Uh, We live in a different world. And and And, we have to deal with that. 100%. And also to those who are listening, again, don't be frightened by all of this. I know it it can be just terrifying. But just think of one thing that you can do tomorrow or this weekend. And Lisa, your advice about if if you in your tacrolimus levels and be aware of your how your body reacts and when it might be too low or too high. That advice that you gave, I think, is really worth putting out there and worth repeating, Lisa. So just something like that, something that I can do. And then what should I do if I feel? X, Y, or Z. Mm-hmm. How do I approach that? How do I get back to the original manufacturer or maybe a different manufacturer of that same drug? So find one thing that you can do. And then that feels more empowering. And then you can take on the next thing and the next thing. I believe I'm going to talk to my legislative advocacy committee specifically about getting a letter to your elected officials drawn up on why it's important to come up with a solution to the generic drug crisis. And I will call it a crisis that we need to bring their attention to it and start flooding their inboxes with emails that we're concerned, we're concerned. So stay tuned for some action items on that one. And I'm going to wrap up here with saying, I'm going to be back podcasting again this week because I missed last week uh, because I was out in California. And this Friday, I will be joined by Drs. Martin Marin and Dr. Steve Amen of Leahy Clinic and Mayo Clinic. And we are going to do an end of year wrap up 
It has been a big year for hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Our first labeled indication drug hit market. Some new centers have popped up. Lots of education to the medical community and patients about HCM. It's even hitting your Pandora and and your streaming services with commercials now. Uh, So the world is starting to talk about us and see us. And what does that mean for our future? So Rosemary, I look forward to continuing the conversation at another time. And thank you all to listen today. We went a little bit long, but it was an important topic. And I hope your listeners will take a look at China Rx. It's on Amazon, Barnes and Noble. And I want everybody to know that we donate proceeds to good causes. So this is for all of us and don't be frightened, but enlightened and empowered. So thank you, Lisa. It's a great pleasure. And I'm sure we'll be back together again soon. I'm sure we will. And thanks to all those who've been commenting on social media. We appreciate your comments. And if you're listening to this after the live broadcast and you have any questions, you can email us at support at 4hcm.org or you can call the office 973-983-7429. 